Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Hi, good morning. <laughs> we almost had church just for a second there. We almost had church. And then I came up here and it's over. All right. Uh, anyway, glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us this weekend, thanks for being here. Uh, great time to visit church. Um, and uh, I think it's a great series for you to, to be a part of. Because what we're doing here in this series is um, we're going through kind of, I guess, a misunderstanding uh, that we've had of Christmas is Doyle came up here last week and he talked about um, this misunderstanding of maybe it's the, the why or the how of Christmas. Is we live in a culture in which um, a lot of Christians will complain that culture has taken the Christ out of Christmas. And I think that's somewhat true. But I would also argue that the church, us, that we have forgotten the mass in the Christmas. And so Doyle talked a little bit about that last week, is, is uh, what, uh, what really Christmas means. And if you break down the word Christmas, it's obviously Christ and Mass. And Masses come to uh, represent the entire church service. It's a, it's a festival. It's a gathering. The church comes together and celebrates what took place on Christmas. And so the, the point last week was you, you can't have Christmas without having church. And so church is really at the heart of the Christmas season and the celebration. And so what I want to do today is uh, I, want to, I want to begin the Christmas story, and it's probably uh, part of the Christmas story, and I don't know if you have this tradition at your house or not, is um, on Sunday, or sorry, excuse me, on a Christmas morning, we have, um, we have breakfast, and then we're going to do presents, but before we do that, we all sit around and, and somebody gets to read the Christmas story. And so maybe you have a tradition similar to that as you go through, and this is the part of the Christmas story in which you skip over. Because it's not very exciting. It's not like you sit around and go, ooh, that, that just gives me the, the warm and fuzzy cozies inside, and that's really, mm, that's nice. But I think that if you, you miss this part of the Christmas story, you, you fail to see the why and how of Christmas, or at least a, a part of it. And so I want to walk you through this part of the Christmas story uh, and see if I can show you that this is not only a part of the story, but it's an important part of the story. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, you can go with me to Matthew 1, and we're going to start reading together uh, 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 the, the, the beginning of the story. It says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So Matthew begins his gospel, his story about Jesus, with these opening words. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? Well, he's got a couple reasons. Um, one reason is because he wants to show you what this book is about. And first and foremost, this book is about Jesus, which some of you guys find surprising because you open the Bible and you go, now, what does this mean for me? Hmm, how does this make my life better? Can I be happier, better marriage, more? No, no, no. He wants you to understand that although there might be implications for your life in this book, this book is not about you. Okay, second thing he wants you to know is this isn't some fairy tale. This isn't a Disney story. Once upon a time, there was this lovely man named Jesus. No, that's not what's taking place. Is, is he says this was a real man. He had flesh and blood, and he came here in space and time, and he lived this life. And so I just want to tell you from the very beginning, this person is real. This is a story that took place in our world. And he says this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you understand the context, Matthew is primarily writing to uh, Jews at the time, first century Jews. And so what they wanted to know was, is this Jesus, whom you're going to argue is the Messiah, does he come from the line of Abraham and David? 
Because prophecy foretold that the Messiah would come from that lineage. And so if he doesn't come from them, automatically we know Jesus is not the Messiah. And so he starts to talk about the lineage from Abraham to David to Jesus. Here's what he says. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, if you remember, and if you've been reading through uh, some of the devos, we've been doing this in the kids' devos and in the adult devos, is we've been going through all these different biblical characters. And you might be thinking, well, what do they have to do with Christmas? Well, they're, they're part of the Christmas story. And so you go all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham was uh, the, the father of the nation of Israel. Is God chose him one day, and he says, Abraham, it's your lucky day. I'm going to make you a deal. He has this thing called a covenant. And he says, if you worship me, you're faithful to me, you follow my commands, I'm going to reveal certain things about myself to you. And then through you, I am going to <clears throat> build up an entire nation through your lineage. And then that nation is going to know certain things about God, and it's going to be able to bless the entire world. And it actually happened. Abraham uh, eventually has a son, and his son's name is Isaac. Now, this is kind of a crazy story. If you don't know the Bible, I'm going to give you a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament. Maybe it'll encourage you to read the Bible because it's pretty interesting. Abraham has this kid named Isaac, and this is the son which he has been waiting all his life for, that God promised him. And to test Abraham's faith, he says, I want you to go and take your son Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to show your obedience and faithfulness to me. And so Abraham has a tough decision to make. Will he continue to follow God? And so he takes his son Isaac up to the top of this mountain. As they're walking up there, he makes him carry all the, the resources, the wood, in order to um, have this sacrifice upon the altar. And as they're walking up, I, here's my imagination. is Isaac, because I have little boys, Isaac is just excited to have some dad time. You know, like, Woo, we're going on a hike. We're going on. This is going to be amazing. We have a bonfire. Woo, dad. And then dad's not really that excited about our time together. And so as he's walking up there, he gets to the top of the mountain, in which he's going to sacrifice his boy on the altar. And Isaac looks around and he goes, uh, Dad, um, where's the sacrifice? Oh, I've got some bad news, son. You're the sacrifice. And so he puts his son up on the altar. And as he's getting ready, he is close. He's just about to sacrifice his son. An angel appears and says, whoa, whoa stop, 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 hold on. You've shown that you're obedient to God. And because of your obedience, God is going to provide you a sacrifice. And there's a ram right there. But it was close. But God was faithful. So Isaac grows up and Isaac has kids. And I, one of his kids is named Jacob. It says Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now you may have heard of Jacob. Jacob has a brother. His name is Esau. They're twins. And technically uh, Esau was born first. And so in that culture, if you're the firstborn, you get the majority of the inheritance. You get two-thirds of the estate. And this is, doesn't make uh, Jacob very happy. And so Jacob decides, you know what? I'm going to get my share. In fact, I'm going to get all of it. And so what he does is he tricks his brother Esau. Now, Esau, if you know anything about him, he's strong, he's bold, he's manly, and he's dumb. And so he trades all of his inheritance for a bowl of soup. I don't know what kind of soup it was. It had to be pretty good. And he, and he ends up tricking his own father into giving him the inheritance and his blessing. Well, this doesn't go over well with Esau, of course, and, and so Jacob flees into a foreign land. He eventually lands at uh, his, uh, his uncle's place, Laban. And when he gets to Laban, uh, Laban's, um, Laban's house, he decides that he's going to stay for a while and work. And, and as he's doing that, there's this young lady who catches his eye. Her name is Rachel, and he really likes Rachel. Rachel is Laban's daughter. Now, if you're following the storyline, which I'm going to go fast, you may have heard that Laban is his uncle, which makes Rachel his 
cousin. You're like, I didn't know the Bible was in Alabama. It is. Okay, no. That was cheap. That was a cheap shot. I apologize. That was a cheap shot. I assume no one in Alabama is watching this because they don't have internet there. So, um, okay, again, that was rude. That was rude. That was rude. Or electricity. Okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Laban ends up tricking Jacob, and uh, it's kind of a fascinating story. Uh, when he thinks that he's going to be marrying Rachel, Laban gets him drunk. He wakes up the next morning to see his new bride, and it happens to be Leah. Leah is Rachel's older sister. And here's what pops into my mind when I think about Leah and Rachel. Have you uh, seen the movie, or maybe you remember it? It was, it's kind of an old movie now. It was called Twins. And it had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And they were twins. Okay, Leah is Danny DeVito in this story. All right, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> anyway, so he goes back and he works another seven years and he marries Rachel. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And, and so a little background information is Jacob, uh, God ends up changing Jacob's name to Israel. And then between Leah and Rachel, he has 12 boys. And those boys became the 12 tribes of Israel. If you're not tracking all these names, don't worry about it. I'll make a point at the end and you'll go, no, okay, I get it. All right. Uh, One of the boys of the 12 is named Joseph. And even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard of Joseph before because he had this amazing fashion sense, right? This very beautiful coat. But that's not who is listed here. Out of the 12 brothers, Jesus does not come through the lineage of Joseph. Because if you know Joseph's story, Joseph's story is he was betrayed by his brothers because um, they were jealous of him. And so they throw him into a well and they're deciding, are we going to kill Joseph or not? And as they're sitting there trying to decide what they're going to do with this younger brother, these Ishmaelites are traveling by and they're selling goods and they're on their way to Egypt. And this is where we get introduced to Judah, one of the 12 brothers. Here's what it says in Genesis 37, 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Well, isn't that sweet, you know? He goes, guys, he's our brother. We can't do this to him. Plus, we won't make any money. Let's sell him, okay? We'll sell sell him off and see if we can make a couple bucks. And so he does. It says this, it says, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, we find out that Judah goes on and he has kids. But then Matthew does something really strange here. Is he not only lists the kids, but he says, oh, and by the way, the mother of these kids is Tamar. Now, you may not know who Tamar is, but the original audience who was hearing this definitely knew who Tamar was. In fact, this is one of the more scandalous stories in the scripture. If you're not a Bible reader because you think it's boring, read this story. There are parts of this story which I am not comfortable reading out loud in church. So here's what happens. <laughs> Judah has three boys. The first boy, um, he marries off to a woman named Tamar. Now, it doesn't tell us what happened, but it tells us that this, this man, he is evil in God's sight. And so God just strikes him dead. And it's Judah's responsibility to take care of his daughter-in-law. And in that culture, that responsibility meant that he was supposed to marry Tamar off to his next son. And so he does so, and he marries off to the next son. And this is the part which I can't say out out loud in church, but let's just say he does something 
so graphic, well, it's graphic that it's listed in the scriptures, that God sees the evil that he is doing, and he ends up killing that son as well. And so Tamar is once again a grieving widow, and she goes to her father-in-law, Judah, and says, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to take care of me. Judah says, okay, here's what I want you to do. My third son, he's not young enough to be married yet. And so I want you to go back to your father's house, live as a grieving widow, and then when he comes of age, I'm going to marry you off to him. And so she goes, and and time passes, and more time passes, and she realizes Judah has totally forgotten about her. And she is suffering. She is a woman who is unmarried and growing older in this culture. What is she supposed to do? And so she decides that she's got a plan. I'm not saying it's a good plan, but she's got a plan. So here's what she does. She one day dresses up as a, and my wife told me not to use the terminology because there may be kids present, so I'll say a working woman, okay? Um, Saturday night, I got a little too graphic. My wife scolded me. I won't do that again today. And so this working woman, um, in that culture, they would cover their face, kind of opposite of what we do today. They kind of take off clothes there. They put on clothes. Anyway, that was supposed to edit that part out too. Okay. Um, So... She dresses up as a working woman, and she goes down to the gates by the temple. And she knows that Judah is going to come in and out of those gates. He's an important man. He's going to go into the temple to make decisions, have discussions. And so she waits there. And it doesn't take very long for Judah to walk by. And, of course, he doesn't recognize her. And so she strikes up a conversation. They make a deal. They say, hey, let's spend some time together. And so they spend some time together. They negotiate a rate. Apparently, it's a, it's a goat. That was the, the going rate of the day. So they go, they do what they do, and at the end of it, she says, now I want my payment. Well, he doesn't have a goat with him. I don't think he was anticipating this kind of day, and so he says, I'm going to have to come back to you on that. Well, well you've got you to give me something. I've got to hold on to something so that I know that you're going to pay me. He says, okay, well, here's my, my seal. It's like, a, it's like a stamp that would be his signature, and then his, his staff. These are very personal. These are very precious to him, and so I, I know that he'll come back, and he'll pay me because he wants these things back. And so he goes home, and he calls one of his servants, and he goes, hey, um, I need you to go and find this working woman down at the temple. I owe her a goat. Don't ask. It's been a long day. I don't really want to talk about it. So he goes down there, and he starts asking around, hey, have you guys seen this woman? Nobody knows what he's talking about. There's no woman down here that you're talking about. And so he goes back home, and he tells Judah, and Judah goes, Okay, well, there's nothing I can really do right now. You can't go and make a big deal like, hey, I hired a working woman and she stole my stuff. Like, you can't really make that public. And so he just says, I guess I'm just going to have to let it go. Well, one day, about three months later, a man comes up to Judah's house and he is fired up about something. And he says, Judah, you won't believe it. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she is, and I think this is in the uh, King James Version, she has been playing the harlot She's pregnant, and he gets fired up. Like, how could she disgrace our family like this? He is self-righteous. He goes, you know what we're going to do? We're going to burn her alive. And so they go, and they drag her out of her home, and when she's about to be burned alive, she says, oh, hold on one second. Um, The man who I am pregnant by, this is his seal seal in his staff. Anybody recognize it? (laughs) Judah's probably like, guys, I overreacted. I think we should show her grace. <laughs> you know, like. Now, eventually, uh, Judah does admit, okay, this was me. This was my bad. Um, I messed up big time. And he takes responsibility. Well, the kids who were from that pregnancy are Perez and Zerah. The mother was 
Tamar. All right, we'll continue on. Uh, it says, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Anibadab, Anibadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, who was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, who was, uh, wh- whose mother was Ruth. Now, I don't have time to get into this. You should go and look it up, but fascinating stories. So you have people like Ruth. Now, Ruth, um, she was a Moabite, not an Israelite. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible about her. She's seen as a heroic figure. But then you have this other character, Rahab, also a, a heroic figure. But she not only was uh, not an Israelite, she was a working woman. I don't know what it is about Jesus' family. A lot of working women in it. Is that blasphemous? That sounded blasphemous. It does a little bit. It's true, though. I didn't make this up. Okay. Uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. I could just hear a sigh of relief amongst the crowd. Finally, we get to somebody whom we like in the story. King David. This was their their hero. This was the greatest king of Israel. This was the king who, who had a special relationship with God. In fact, God made this promise to King David that he would always have an heir on the throne because he was a man after God's own heart. And so finally, we're reminded about the, 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 the power and the success and the faithfulness of Israel and its kings. And then Matthew says this. Matthew, or David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Oh, he doesn't even say it. He makes them say it. Now, is there any Bible scholars in here who knows who that is? Bathsheba. Okay. You don't know it, so we're going to go. Okay, I'll tell you. All right. Here's the story is Israel is in a time of war, and although David is a great warrior, he decides he's going to stay back, and he is going to uh, command from the palace as his soldiers are out there fighting. And one day, as he's hanging out at the palace, he goes on the roof, and he's looking at his vast kingdom, and he sees this woman who is bathing, and he likes what he sees. And so he asks one of the guys, hey, do you know who that woman is right there? Yeah, 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 that's, uh, that's Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Now, you got to understand who Uriah is. Uriah is one of his, um, one of his men, one of his guys. And not just in his army presently, but this is one of the guys who had David's back at his lowest moments. As David was being chased down by Saul, who wanted to kill him, the former king. And Uriah and some of his men were the ones who came around and surrounded David, protected him. David owes Uriah his life. Yeah, that's, that's Uriah's wife down there, Bathsheba. He says, bring her to me. And so he brings her into the palace, and he does what he does because he thinks that everything is his, and he sends her home. Well, one night, as he's hanging out at the palace, he gets this message. It's from Bathsheba, and it says, David, I'm pregnant, and you are the father. What are you going to do? Well, David's about to be caught in a big moral trap is what is he going to do? And so he comes up with a plan. He says, you know what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to have Uriah come home from battle. And so he sends a message and Uriah comes back and he's going to pretend like he wants to have some updates about what's happening in the front lines. And so he comes and they have dinner and they discuss. He says, great, great. Thanks for, uh, you know, good hearing from you. Why don't you go back home to your wife, spend some time with her, and then you can go back to battle. Uriah is such a stand-up dude. He goes, no, I'm not going to go back home because as my men are fighting on the front lines, I can't go and be in a comfortable home with my wife. And so he sleeps outside with the servants. Next night, he tries it again, except this time he gives him a lot of alcohol. And he says, now go home and spend some time with your wife. Same thing. So he says, okay, this isn't working. Uriah is a stand-up dude. And so I'm going to have to do something serious. And so what he does is 
He writes a letter, he seals it, he gives it to Uriah, and Uriah takes it to the commander at the front lines. And here's what the letter says. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He has one of his best friends killed because he's having an affair with his wife. And Matthew wants to make sure we remember it. David thinks that he gets away with it. So what happens is Uriah dies. He gives a short period of grieving for Bathsheba. Then he acts like a hero and he's going to bring her into his home and he's going to marry her. And so everybody thinks, oh, David, what a good guy. You know who knew the truth, though? God. Yeah, God happened to know what was happening. He happened to be seeing the whole thing. And he goes, you think everybody else you may have tricked, but me, you haven't tricked me. And so he sends this prophet. And this, uh, the, the prophet Nathan comes and he says, look, God knows what you did. He knows about all of this. You may have, you may have tricked them, but he didn't trick God. And so like any good father, he is going to discipline you. And so he disciplines, and he disciplines harshly. And the pregnancy uh, that uh, is a result of this affair, the child is born and then dies. David grieves, he repents, and God forgives him. But this is kind of the beginning of the end for Israel. Is after this we have Solomon and the nation splits. And in fact, um, this is only about a third of the names on that list. If you go through, there's fascinating stories like this uh, amongst the, the, the whole, whole lot is interesting character after interesting character. And if you're a first Jew and you're a first century Jew and you're reading this and you're thinking, okay, Matthew, why did you list all those people? Like you didn't have to. In fact, you went out of your way to really make a big deal out of these people whom we would rather forget. See, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because in that culture, your lineage is your resume. It determines what your status is in culture or in that society. And so why would you list all these people whom we want to forget? It's not only true back then, it's sort of true now. Like, have you ever sat down with someone who maybe you don't know all that well, and they're saying, tell me about your family, and you tell them about this, but you selectively edit out that uncle? If you don't, you're that uncle. <laughs> or, um, or as you're thinking about the holidays, you're thinking about all the people that you're going to invite, and then there's that one cousin that you think, now, how, we're not that closely related, do I have to invite them? My family, uh, we have talked a lot about our heritage is I talk about my dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and how they were men of faith and they were pastors and how they turned uh, their lives around and how God used them in, in incredible ways. But there's this other part of our family, and I, I could spend some time on this, but I think the most notable is, uh, and if you're an American history buff, you, you've already heard about this, is there's these two other characters, John and Mary Surratt. In fact, there's a whole movie made about them not that long ago called The Conspirators. And why they're famous is because Mary was the first woman ever to be hung in the United States. Why was she hung? Well, she was a conspirator to kill Abraham Lincoln. Turns out she was innocent. Her son, however, was guilty. Those are the kind of conversations you don't usually bring up over dinner. Tell me about your family. Well, we killed Lincoln. <laughs> just, that's who we are, you know? That's just what we do. No, nobody wants to highlight that part of their family. And yet that's exactly what Matthew does. He takes those, those things that we would rather forget and he places them front and center. Why would he do that? I think part of the reason is because Matthew sees himself in this story. 
There's another list in chapter 10, and it's the list of the 12. And he goes through, Matthew goes through, and he lists all 12, and and they're all different characters with different backgrounds, different stories. And so you have people like um, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, brothers who are fishermen. They're just regular blue-collar guys. Then you have another set of brothers, James and John. They were also fishermen, but they were, um, they ran a successful business. They were wealthy. They had employees. They had up, they were upstanding citizens. They were kind of upper-class folks. And then you had Simon, the zealot, zealot being an activist. He was a political and religious activist. And his, his group, his sect of Judaism, was actually responsible for some of the wars between Rome and the Jews. So you have all these characters, and then you have Matthew. And if you know anything about Matthew's story, is Matthew is definitely the outcast. Uh, there's a show called The Chosen, and my wife and I have been watching it. And one of my favorite things about the show is um, how they cast Matthew, and then they showed the tension of him being in the group. Where there's all these other guys, and they just can't stand him at first. Because he's a traitor. He's the enemy. He is a Jew who works for Rome to steal from his people. And he hangs out with the worst of the worst. The first time that Jesus meets him, he's at his tax collector's booth. And then that night, he goes to Matthew's house, and it's all a bunch of prostitutes. Oh, sorry, uh, working people. And, uh, oh, jeez, I'm in trouble. And drug dealers. Okay, I don't know if that's better. All right, anyway. <laughs> I would imagine that years later, Matthew sits down uh, to write about the about all the things that he's seen and he's experienced over those few years with Jesus. And as he is writing his gospel, he starts off with the genealogy and he goes, oh, I've got something for him. With a little smirk on his face, he goes, I'm going to make sure that every page of this story tells this truth, that Jesus came from sinners to save sinners. Even in something as mundane as a list of people, I'm going to make sure that people know why Jesus came. That the point of Christmas is that Jesus came from sinners to save sinners. And although the characters might be different, just like the 12 were in their backgrounds and how they sinned and how they lived, it all is true of every single one of them and of me and you, is we all needed Jesus because we're all sinners. Last week, and I want to quickly end with this, as Doyle talked about how we can participate in Christmas. And so I think um, right here, Matthew is highlighting, here is the point of Christmas. But I think there's another part of it, is, okay, if that's the point, then how do we participate in Christmas? Doyle said last week that um, there's two main elements to participating in Christmas, and he spoke about the first. It's on one one hand, it's about gathering and celebrating, that the church comes together and we celebrate the fact that Jesus has come. It's the incarnation that God has come and he has gone, he's been face to face with us. All those questions about God, does he exist? Can we know him? What is his plan for us? Is there any kind of relationship that we can have? All of those questions were answered when God showed up in human form and stood face to face with us and answered them. And so we come together as a church and we celebrate that fact. But there's a second part that's the going or the commissioning, is that we are called to go out and proclaim this good news. You remember in the story, the angel comes and announces Christ's birth, and he says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You can even see it in the word Christmas itself. Christ Mass. Now, the Mass part has come to refer to the entirety of the service, the gathering, the celebration, but that's not where it originated. 
It actually was just the ending of the service. It was at the end of the service that the uh, priest or pastor would come up and say, Ite misa iste, means go, it, the church, is sent. We have gathered, we have celebrated, and now it is time to go out and proclaim the good news. That's really just what the Christian life is about. It's this two-parter. It's this two, Matthew, he describes the 12 as disciples and apostles. And we think that they're interchangeable, that they mean the same thing, but they don't. They're describing two aspects of what it means to be a Jesus follower. There's the discipleship part, which is we want to be like him. As we look at how he lives, we want to live like that. But then there's the, the apostle part. And that means it's someone who is sent with a message, with a mission. And so we are supposed to be people who follow and then go out and proclaim. That's at the very heart of what Christmas is. Is we are people who gather and celebrate and then go and proclaim the good news. And so... Here's kind of the point, the big takeaway. If you're sleeping, wake up. This is the part that you need to know. At Christmas, Jesus was sent. And now, at Christmas, we are sent. At Christmas, Jesus was sent. And now, at Christmas, we are sent. We're sent to go and proclaim the good news that God has come and he has made a way. And so I just wanted to give you something to, to maybe... Maybe remind us a little bit about what Christmas is, because it can get lost in all the craziness and all the fun, and I love all that kind of stuff. And we try to make this place amazing at Christmas because we want you to gather and celebrate, but I also want you to remember to go and to proclaim the good news. There's a lot of symbolism um, and reminders at Christmas, and you may, not, may or may not know this, but the tree originally was... Uh, symbolizing everlasting life with God, and the stars and angels atop it um, were symbolizing the announcement of Christ's birth, and even ornaments on the tree. At first started off as apples, reminding us of the Garden of Eden, and then became wafers, reminding us of the Eucharist. But what I thought would be kind of fun this year is to give you another reminder. Another reminder that Christmas is about all of those things and, and much more. And so um, we, had a, we had these made, and they're cool little wooden ornaments, and they're just a the chapel or outline of the chapel is the SEG church. And, and we thought it would be fun for you to decorate them and, and, and maybe put them on your tree at home. Now, I get it. Um, I grew up in a home in which there was two trees. There was the tree that everybody saw when they walked in that my mom decorated and we couldn't touch. And then there was our tree upstairs. This would have gone on that tree. I get it, okay? <laughs> but I would love, it, love to just be a reminder of Christmas is about all of those things, but it's also about the church. The church coming together, celebrating, and then going out and proclaiming the good news. And so take one of these, and, and we have plenty for everybody. So even if you're like, you know what, that's never ending up on my tree, um, put it on your mirror in your car. Or, I don't know, find a place for it. It will remind you, okay? Uh, but make sure you grab one of these. Because this is the time of the year in which Jesus was sent so that we could be sent as well. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for... This season, um, Lord, there's so much that we enjoy about this season. Um, emotionally, it, it can be engaging, it's fun, it brings nostalgia, but I think we also need to be reminded of why it is that not only you were sent, but why we were sent into the world. And so, Lord, this is a time of the year in which people are most open to hearing about you, hearing about things of faith, being invited to church, and so, Lord, we want to take that opportunity and through the power of your Holy Spirit, go out and proclaim the good news in hopes that there would be more people who could come and celebrate with us what has happened here. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.
All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you guys so much for being here. Go hang out in the village. There's uh, pizza, breakfast pizza out there. Other than that, we'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 